All right, What's, I got a sermon to preach. Amen. We're in the book of Hebrews. So let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews. There we go, lesson three. I'm going to try to go bite off three chapters. Now, it's impossible to teach that in 40 minutes, but you go home and you study every word that I, that I don't mention, and you'll see that it's just loaded with truth. Hebrews is a rich book. It's like I feel like I'm, I'm mining for diamonds, and I, and I find them, I discover them as I go through the book of Hebrews. So uh, I'm praying this study be a blessing to you. We're just going to go a few more weeks into this and, or, until God tells us to stop. We're, we're 5, 6, and 7, but we're going to start with the verse toward the end of chapter 7. It said, He, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus. Jesus can save you not only from hell. He'll save you from yourself. He'll save you from your fears. He'll save you from your weakness, from your humanity. He'll save you to the uttermost all the way to end of Sabbath rest. He'll save you to where you're no longer sick and tired of being sick and tired. He'll, he'll, he'll help you enter into this rest, this place of perfect peace, inner joy, a strength so strong that you have a joy even when you, you're suffering. He'll save you to the uttermost. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who? Those who draw near to God through him. That means right now in heaven, right now Jesus at the right hand of the Father... He knows you. He knows you very well. He's interceding on your behalf. How can you miss it with him as your intercessor? How, I mean, it's impossible for you not to make it because he's interceding for you. He, he's on your side. He loves you. He's praying. Oh, man, we could just do that for an hour. So stop living with worry, fear, anxiety. Jesus saves us and he keeps us. Not only will He save you, He'll keep you. You're secure in Him. You're not just going to make one dumb decision and you're lost going to hell. That's not the way it works. The same Jesus that saves you, He keeps you and he intercedes for you every day. You, he'll save you to the uttermost. So let Jesus do this. Learn to live in victory. Learn to live in Sabbath rest. We talked about that last week. Yeah, we had another miracle. We preached a sermon on Sabbath rest. And we lost it back there. First time we've ever lost a video. So Brother Ray and I were kicking around ideas. I was thinking about just sitting down at a desk and sharing it because we needed to get that online. And like Friday, he, some way miraculously, he found it. He found the sound or something. So now we got the video. We hadn't got it out yet. but it was, it was. So, you know, y'all should read, listen or look at these videos if you don't really understand everything on Sunday morning and just go back over it and it'll help you learn. And you can get them on Facebook or YouTube. And uh, how about thanking all the guys in the video booth for all that they do for that. That's a huge ministry. Huge ministry. Amen. Vince gets the credit for finding or fixing it. Is that what you're saying? Give the Lord a hand clap for Vince. Nobody does more Vince than return. Amen. Thank you, Vince. Brother Dan's been on vacation and... Man, our worship team was less people, but it was so powerful today. You know, we've got an outstanding worship team, and 
And Brother Vince puts a whole lot of work into that. So to start, to go to Hebrews chapter 5, I just want to set the stage, the last couple verses of Hebrews 4. Because you've got to look at the context continually. And you've got to remember, this writer's writing to Jewish Christians who've been born again, but they're suffering so greatly, they're contemplating going back to Judaism. Contemplating going back to Jerusalem, worshiping in the temple, bringing animal sacrifices. The Jews had sewed up the veil in the temple. After on Calvary, remember, it ripped. So the ministry of the high priest was over forever. But the Pharisees didn't like that, so they sewed up the veil, and they started bringing blood sacrifices. Now, can you realize what a grief that was to God? He had just given his only begotten son as a once and final sacrifice. And then here's some people going to keep offering lambs and rams and bullocks. What a, they're spitting in the face of Jesus. And to sew the temple up and let's now pretend that God dwells in the Holy of Holies. He doesn't dwell there anymore. But the high priest was pretending and they tried to keep their system going. And this was such a grief to God that, that a Christian could actually know Jesus Christ. And Jesus would forgive them of all their sins. And they would come under such persecution for that that they thought about going away from Jesus and back to temple worship again. So here we, he sets a stage, he's trying to put the context, and he's comparing in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, the priesthood after the order of Aaron versus the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Aaron's a temporal priesthood, Melchizedek's an eternal priesthood. Aaron's from the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was from the tribe of Judah. Aaron, you know, was, was a man, and Jesus was the Son of God. So there is no comparison, but to these people that were suffering that kind of persecution, they were weighing these things. And that's why the writer writes with the tone and the, in, the, in the manner that he does. So he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So we started off Hebrews 7.25, said draw near. Draw near to God through Christ. He's going to save you to the uttermost. And here in Hebrews 4, 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. They have a priestly order after Aaron and a temple worship with no God in the temple. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Where is the Holy of Holies? It's in your prayer closet. That's where it is. Where are you going to find Him? On your knees. You need to draw near to Him in your time of need. Now here he, he, the writer does a comparison again. He first starts out with Aaron. He says, For every high priest chooseth from a, chosen from among men is appointed to act on the behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. So the priest, they only had one high priest in Israel, and he had to first make blood sacrifices for his own sin. 
He was a sinful man. Even though he was the high priest, he was a sinful man. And, and he could understand the weaknesses of the people because he was weak himself. And that's the order of Aaron. That was the old system, the old Levitical priesthood. And then Hebrews 5, 6, speaking of Jesus, he says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Aaron, the high priest. Every priest born in Israel came from the tribe of Levi. Aaron came from the tribe of Levi. But it was an earthly priesthood. Now, there was all kinds of requirements to be a priest. You couldn't have any blemish at all. You had to be a Levite. And uh, you were from the descendants of Aaron. And they would all dress up and see the priest's mission was to represent the people to God. The prophets were God speaking from him to the people. The priest came to God on behalf of the people. He brought sacrifices to atone or cover sin. In the Old Testament, no sins were removed, only covered. They were atoned, that covered. And all sins got removed on the cross of Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. That's where the sins were removed. But, but the priest, as a type and a shadow of Christ, you know, always was making offerings for the people. And in the tabernacle, he would, you know, do the sin offering blood and the whole burnt offering blood and the peace offerings, all these different animals. And some, some of this offering was for his own sins and some were for the sins of the people. And then he would go into the holy of holy, I mean the holy place where the candlestick and the golden altar and the table of shewbread were. And he would minister to the heart of God, but representing the people. He was the mediator between God and the people. And the tabernacle was even a bigger picture. It was the mediator. It was a picture of Jesus in the wilderness. God needed a mediator between his holiness and the wickedness of the people. So he sets a tabernacle in the wilderness. And this tabernacle was a type, a picture, a shadow of Jesus Christ that was to come. And when Jesus came at the cross, all of this ended. He said, it is finished and the veil was rent to and fro. It was ripped. It was over with. The old covenant was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law every jot and tittle. Now we go to Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. Let's look at the first part of this verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or fear of God. That's a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we think of Gethsemane, this is kind of what comes to our mind because we've seen so much art, Christian art over the years. Right? That's what I think of. But that's not how Gethsemane was at all. Jesus was bleeding out of his pores. Let's look at this. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
And we knew they just fell, they fell asleep. Crazy. They're about to witness one of the most amazing things in the history of the world, and they fall asleep. They needed some Red Bull or one of those monster drinks or something, right? They needed some. That was a dumb time to go to sleep. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So I could probably throw a stone to the back of the wall. So about that far into the, into the garden of Gethsemane. And he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Why did he need a creature to come lay hands on him and strengthen him? Well, look at the next verse. You'll see it. And be in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The Son of God wasn't all posed, looking beautiful in Gethsemane. No, the Son of God was on his face, and, and he had just eaten the Old Testament lamb. He just took the Old Covenant at the Passover table. The lamb was at the table, and he swallowed it. And as soon as he swallowed it, the sins of me and you, the sins of the whole world, started coming down on him. He, he, he was about, he had just come from the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Now he was in the garden. He was about to be arrested and beaten and tried and spit upon. And then he's going to walk up the Via Della Rosa to a place called Calvary. Right? So this was the beginning of Calvary. This, the, the agony. He's sweating blood. You can look that up. There's a, term, a medical term for that. When someone is under such great pressure that they'll actually start bleeding out of their sweat glands. They'll start, he was bleeding. His face had to be bloody. His hands had to be bloody. He was in agony. So bad that the father had to send an angel to lay hands on him to get him up to go to the cross. And let me tell you something. I don't believe for one minute Jesus was scared or afraid to go to the cross. Because my Jesus never sinned. Not one time. He ne in fact, his, his cry was, Father, I'm dying here in the garden. And, and I'm, I need to get up and go to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the Father heard his cry and sent an angel. And the angel strengthened him. And he was able to get up under the weight of all of our sin. That's what I believe happened in Gethsemane. Came to his disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If they could have actually witnessed the whole thing, maybe they would have had enough faith when they, Jesus got arrested not to run. They all ran. They all fled at the cross. Peter was called out. Oh, you're one of them. And he denied the Lord three times. The mighty apostle Peter was, was a, was, was, had lost his faith and lost his hope and lost his confidence in Christ and denied him. So that's what Hebrews is saying in verse 5. And then you finish this paragraph, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him, being designed, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus didn't have to learn obedience. He was obedient in everything he did. But he had to learn obedience in each experience. He had to be tested and tried and tempted in all points for him to be the perfect one. And, and he passed every test. So when he learned obedience through suffering, it's God had to put him through the suffering that he might go through that thing, that you'll have a high priest that understands everything you're going through. You're never going to go through something that Jesus hadn't already been through and or that has, Jesus has not already overcome. Your overcoming comes from your faith in Christ. Your, your victory comes from your faith in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. He is your source. He's your source of love, your source of grace, your source of mercy. He's my source of salvation. I'm not going to try to save myself when he's done it for me. I love this next verse. I'm jumping back over to Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus was innocent. (laughs) You and I aren't so innocent. Jesus was unstained. We've all been stained with sin. Jesus is holy. None of us were holy. We were at odds with God, but when we got saved and born again and put our trust in Him, then everything He was, He makes us. And this is how we get in right relationship with Him. All right, then the the writer is about to give a big warning. Again. And a lot of people would just, oh, let's just skip over those verses, Brother Hudson. That's what's wrong with the modern church. We need to deal with everything. Let's, let's take the whole counsel of God's Word. Let's, let's, let's believe it all and understand what it's saying. The reason of the warning is because these Jews were considering going back. They were considering going back because they were afraid of the persecution. Now, I, I'm going to skip over to Hebrews 10 just to show you some of the things they've gone through. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew things there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. Have any of y'all ever suffered along those lines? Amen. Threw all your neighbors in jail, came and took all the stuff out of your house, confiscated everything, and they just there with joy. So you don't want to look down on these Hebrew believers. They've been through a lot. If you went through what they've gone through, you might think about going back somewhere. Amen. They were suffering, and they were spiritually immature. And this, even though they suffered like that, the writer makes a big point that they were immature. There's much more, Hebrews 5.11, we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You're like babes who need milk and cannot eat solid food. 
For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and does not know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who are th- through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So the writer of Hebrews was calling this group babies. And that has to be offensive, especially if you've been in the way a long time, been a Christian a long time. None of us want to act like babies. None of us want to be called immature. Uh, but he's saying, you know, you just can't handle it. So that's why I'm having to treat you like I'm treating you. And he's, so the next verses, Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 3, he gives this tremendous call for them to move on into maturity, to, to get where they can eat the meat. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. That's what God wants for return church, for us to be seasoned adults that are eating the meat of the Word. Now, He's going to define what the milk is. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. That's salvation. He's saying, you know all about salvation? That's milk. And then He says, you don't need further instruction about baptisms. We believe in Holy Ghost baptism around here. If you don't, have never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you, you need to be. That is an experience God wants you to have. If you've never been water baptized, that's an experience God wants you to have. But he's telling the group here, let's, let's move on to maturity. Let's don't go back again and deal with salvation and baptisms or the laying on of hands. If you, want, if you need prayer, the Bible says we can lay hands on you and anoint with oil. The elders of the church pray for you, that the prayer of faith will save the sick. There's a lot, of, a lot of things God will give you through the ministry of laying on hands. But that's milk. Or the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. We think about that. We know all about that. That's milk. And eternal judgment. The great white throne judgment or even the judgment seat of Christ. We know a lot about that. That's milk, he says. That's all milk. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. This is the milk they needed meat. Why were they going back? Because they were babes, they were immature, and they had a lot of fear on them. A lot of worry and a lot of anxiety. I believe that these three things are the three biggest enemies we have. They're definitely the enemies of peace. They're, they're enemies in your life that you need to deal with. You, you've got to manage them or they will manage you. You better deal with them or they're going to deal with you. I mean, it's one way or the other. You've got to fight some spiritual warfare here and overcome worry, anxiety, and fear. The root of these, the root of all three of these is an orphan spirit. That's why God put his arm around me today when we were singing. See, an orphan spirit just doesn't have a daddy to run to. Orphan, orphan thinks he can do it all himself because he doesn't know he can run to daddy. He can run to a loving father, a loving God, and God will embrace him and God will help him. Brother, sister, out there, you're not an orphan. If you know, Chris, if you know Jesus Christ, you know you have a loving father. You're part of the family of God. We, we were once orphans. We were once part of Satan's family, and he picked us out of that family and chose us, adopted us, and brought us into his family. And now we have full privileges 
of God the Father. We're, we're eternal heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Don't live like an orphan. Because an orphan spirit will always doubt whether or not God really loves you or not. See, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you in your best day. He loves you on your worst day. He loves you when you're being good. loves you when you're being bad. God, I don't quit loving my kids when they mess up. I just, you know, you might get mad at them for a day. You might give them a spanking. God might give you a spanking. But he loves you, and he's right back in your corner, and he wants to invest in your dream. He wants to help you. He, he wants you to do better than you want it yourself. But we have this orphan spirit, and we get this fear on us. And we want to do good, and we, we can't do good. And we're depressed because we're depressed. And we're sad because we're sad. And we're angry because we're angry. Think of that. You wake up depressed, you know you're not supposed to be depressed. So you're now you're depressed because you're depressed. You wake up sad, you know you're not supposed to be sad. Brother Bill's been preaching against that kind of stuff. That's not Well, now you're sad because you're sad. Or some of y'all just wake up mad. You're angry, and the angrier you get, the more ashamed you feel, the more condemned you feel. So now you're angry because you're angry. All this is root, root from an orphan spirit. You think you're an orphan. You don't understand how much God loves you. This is good preaching. Our, our father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You think if you were Bill Gates, his child, would you ever have to worry about money again? Now, this guy's got billions and billions and billions, right? Or Warren Buffett's or whomever. The dude that owns Facebook, I don't even know his name. Billionaires. If you were a billionaire's child, would you live like a pauper? You're the child of a king. You're the child of the creator of the universe. You're the child of the sovereign ruler of the universe. So the things you're worrying about are, are just shouldn't be worrying about them. Now I'm going to give you a scripture here. I'm on detour. Because we've got to deal with worry, anxiety, and fear. All three of them are cl- closely related. And they all come from the same root problem. You've got an orphan spirit. And I believe this is why these Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews were, were, were thinking about leaving their faith and going back because they were suffering so much and they had all this fear on them. Because the writer said they were babes. See, the people that learn to eat the meat of the Word of God don't get knocked down emotionally every time there's pain in their life. They know how to walk through that with a good attitude, with thanksgiving, with praise coming out of their mouth. Y'all still love me anyway? I'm not trying to... I love this scripture right here. This says more than... This is the, the scripture on peace, the peace of mind, the peace of God. Change your mind about worry. Repentance is simply changing your mind, which will change your behavior. That's true repentance. So you need to change your mind about worry, fear, and anxiety. Bible says rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, this is ESV, be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
Wow, you want to memorize a scripture? Memorize that right there. Memorize Philippians 4, 4 through 9. That gave you such, you follow that instruction, I promise you, you can defeat worry, fear, and anxiety. Now here's a little, little, little nutshell. A, consider them your enemies. If you wake up and you're worried about something, if you wake up and you're anxious about something, if you got something you're afraid of, realize that's the enemy. And write them down. Make your list. Call it your worry list. Your fear list. Whatever you want. Write it down. And then turn your worry list into your prayer list. I mean, this is as simple as it gets, and I promise you this works. You write it all down. It might be your health problems, it might be financial problems, it might be relational problems. You know, these things that are happening in your life that just running you crazy, you're, you're miserable because you're anxious, you're afraid, you're worrying about something. Write them down. That's your worry list. Then I want you to go to your prayer closet with that list and say, Lord, here's my prayer list. I'm going to give this to you. I know you're just. I know you're holy. I know you're my father. I know you're on my side. Here, Father, take this. And take this. That's what it means when the Bible says casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Take, take it. Take the worry list and turn that into your prayer list. And by the time you go through that and then, then season all your prayers with thanksgiving. We were praying. Uh, Shannon and Jessica were, and Perla were singing that today. Uh, this is how I win my battle. Something like that. I'm going to fight my battle. How do you do it? With praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving. Now I've got this thing I was worried about. Now I've given it to God. So I'm going to start thanking God for it. Lord, I thank you for this thing. I'm worried all for these things. I'm going to thank you for this. Because you're a good God and you deserve my praise. And all the glory goes to you. I give you everything. I magnify. You just have your worship service thanking God for your worry list, which is now a prayer list, which is now a praise list. <laughs> Amen. That's how it works. And as you experience faith, as you start believing Him, the peace will come. I promise you, it will roll over into your soul. Just like when Jesus spoke to the storm, peace be still. This, this, this troubled soul you have, He'll speak to it and say, peace be still. And uh, the peace will come when you experience faith. So keep your mind then in a state of peace. The scripture said, the peace of God will guard your heart, will guard your heart and mind. It's like a wall. Now worry and anxiety and fear outside of your realm of feeling. And, and peace is taking over, and peace is keeping them at bay, keeping them out there. Y'all follow that? So then it says, think on good things. Don't start thinking about the junk anymore. Start thinking about how good God is to you. Think about all your blessings. Think about everything right in your life. You know, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things. So, so control your thinking at that point. Now, when you wake up and worries overwhelmed you, it, it, this is how you dig out of that. This is how you, you walk yourself out of that. And then now, now you're surrounded by peace. Just start thinking about good things. I like to just meditate on the Bible. I like to read scriptures. I like to memorize scriptures. I like to just think about the blessings of God and the goodness of God. So you can actually change your mind about worry, anxiety, and fear. Romans 12, 2, we quote a lot here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You change your mind. You've got to change your thinking about worry and fear. Because when you're suffering persecution, you can go backwards 
if you're not careful. The next thing you read in Hebrews is Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It's a warning. He says, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. So when you study this, probably uh, there's more argument over this passage of Scripture than any other passage amongst Christian circles. And you find many, many different interpretations. The Arminians see it one way. The Reformed theology or the Calvinists see it another way. Uh, There's this hypothetical uh, hypothetical would mean that a lot of people see this, that it is impossible for someone to fall away. And, you know, because if the only way they'd ever come back would be they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again, holding him up to public shame. So they're saying this whole thing's impossible, so they get this is hypothetical. I don't buy the hypothetical theory, but uh, it's one of the better arguments out there. See, the issue is, can you lose your salvation? Can, should you be worried about losing your salvation? Or can you rest in the, in the security of your Father? Can, can you rest in what God has done? And uh, so I just want us to deal with this. Now, some people think, and I used to think, that I could, I could get lost and then come back to Jesus and get saved again. You know, I would, I would, I would repent of my sins, get saved, then I could sin bad, get lost, and then I could repent again, come back to Jesus, get saved again, but then I sin again, I get lost, and then I repent again and get saved, and I come back to Him. So, man, let me ask you the question. How many sins do you have to commit before you get lost? Or how bad a sin? Is there, is there a certain bad sin you got to do 12 of them or 15 of them before you're lost? See, that's just not my experience. My experience is every time that I'd fallen down, that God was there loving me, protecting me, waiting for me to get back up. My experience is every time I walked away from him, all I had to do was take one step toward him, and he would run to me like he did the prodigal son. My, you know, this, um, but anyway, the, the more works-based doctrines or dogmas, a lot of the Pentecostal world tends to want to believe that you can backslide real easy. And they keep this fear over your head that if you do backslide, you're never going to be able to come back to repentance. So I, that's really not what the author's saying here. And, I, and a lot of preachers think, well, man, if I get my people living in fear like that, they'll, they'll behave themselves and live better. No, they'll be condemned and guilty and miserable and have fear on them. You need to quit thinking that way. Amen. Don't, I haven't told you what I believe about this yet, so I may not. I don't even know if I... There's so many arguments about it, you know. I know I'm just going to give you my personal testimony. That's, that's what I can talk about. See, there are a lot... Maybe this group here wasn't even quite saved. It said they tasted the Word of God or tasted this. I came from a doctrine where we taught that this meant that they were... These are only for the really mature people really ones that grew in Christ 
if they fell away, there was no going back for them. They'd be out banished in some place called outer darkness. Well, that's just a bunch of hogwash, all right? That's just not the truth. I think, amen. <laughs> this is, I, I, I tend to more believe this. This group might not even really ever been born again. You know, maybe they just tasted a little bit of God. Maybe they just flirted with it. There are a lot of examples in the Bible of people that you think would be God's people, but they, they were not. Esau is the first one, I think, of the Bible says he sought the Lord with repentance and tears, but was denied. He couldn't come back to God. He never was with God. He was a rebel the whole way. Uh, Balaam, the prophet, went backwards. Obviously, at one point in time, he was a great prophet of God. He turned out to be a very, very much a false prophet. Uh, Judas was a believer, a disciple. He was even sent out with the two-man teams, were, were casting out devils and, and healing the sick and doing miracles. That was Judas Iscariot. He, he totally betrayed the Lord and hung himself out of guilt and condemnation. Uh, Simon in Acts 8, he was a believer and was baptized. And later, he, then the Holy Ghost came to town and people were getting baptized in the Holy Ghost. And he asked the apostles, Let me, how much do I owe you for that? I want to write a check and pay you because I want the Holy Ghost. And boy, they looked at him and said, you are uh, in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You know, how evil he was. So even though he was a believer with his head and been baptized, I don't think he ever got born again. I think there's a lot of people come to church that are around the edges of this thing and they never really do accept Christ into their life. And uh, so there's a lot of... The only way I know a person could backslide above the point of no return would be to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, Jesus said you can talk against the Son of Man and that your sins will be forgiven, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, your sins won't be forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean when you were a kid, if you were criticizing Pentecostal worship service or you didn't understand something, and you, that doesn't mean any of that. The Holy Spirit is what draws you to Christ. You, the, we read two verses today about drawing near to God. You can't draw near without the Holy Spirit. So if you just hate the Holy Spirit to the point that you curse Him and revile Him and push Him out of your life. and See, this is someone very, very, very wicked that would just push the only thing that could ever save them out of their life. These people, these people and only these people have a point of no return or point of no forgiveness. Y'all understand what I'm saying there? The only those that blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So maybe that group is never saved. The bottom line is uh, the book of Hebrews gives us warning not to go backwards. Don't go backwards. Do you realize what, what they would be going back to would be, uh, wow, Jesus was the final Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And they would have to carry a lamb into the temple and kill it Give the priest, give it to the priest, priest kills it, sheds the blood, saying the blood of Jesus wasn't enough. Or they would have to go to this high priest and say, make intercession for me, saying that Jesus Christ is not enough. <laughs> Even though Jesus is the order after Melchizedek, not after Aaron, he's not enough. I've got to go back to my religion, back to my temple, back to my upbringing. Why? Because Jesus isn't enough. And that's why the writer was constantly warning them and warning them and warning them, don't go back. Hang on to your faith. Hang on to the gospel. Hang on to the blood of Jesus. Hang on to the cross. 
You don't need religion. You just need Jesus. You don't need rules. You just need Jesus. You have everything when you have Jesus. So uh, I'm going to close. But my testimony has been, I've fallen away a few times in 30-something years. But every time I did, every time I did, he was always right there for me. And he always welcomed me home. And so I never got unsaved. I've never been unsaved. Since I got saved, he's always been with me. He gave me eternal life. That means that goes on forever and ever and ever. I don't see how you can make eternal life and kill that. I mean, now you got that. You're saying you believe in once saved, always saved. Not really. But uh, I certainly don't walk around in fear of losing what God has done. Not only has Jesus saved me, he keeps me. He keeps me. He, I am persuaded that he is able. Amen. He keeps me. Amen. He keeps me. I'm going to read this before I quit. I'm going to read this. Two verses. All that the Father give me, these are the words of Jesus, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them to them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. I think that's why the Father put his hand on me today. Just to let me know, you know, you're secure in me. So don't let the devil torment you. Don't, don't let him take, beloved, you hold on to Jesus. You don't have anything to worry about. Nothing at all. We just hold on to him. And let's mature in Christ together and eat the meat of the word together that we might live victorious lives and enter into Sabbath rest. Amen? Let's stand to our feet and we'll be dismissed. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the word of God, for the book of Hebrews. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that not only do you save us, but you keep us. We thank you, Jesus, that you preserve everything you've put in our life, everything the bountiful harvest that's in our heart, you've preserved that. Lord, Lord God, no matter where we may have gone, if we may have taken a wrong turn to the left or to the right, you're always here for us. And Lord, we know your word said that we should draw nigh, that we should draw near God through you, Christ. And we know you're making intercession for us because you want to save us to the uttermost. I just pray in the name of Jesus that everybody in this building, Lord, will have a new desire to be saved to the uttermost. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our fears, our worries, our anxieties. Save us from our weaknesses, Lord God, that we might be lights in this world, that we may be salt in this world. Lord, that we might do and accomplish everything you've laid out for us to do and accomplish. Bless your people this week, Lord God, and bring them back to your house. It's in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.